two Sundays ago, we turned our attention to two of the longest chapters in the entire Bible, Leviticus 13 and 14. Within these two chapters, God lays out a very extensive set of guidelines for how he wanted his people to handle leprosy, or in the ancient Hebrew language, sara'ath. In the first 46 verses of chapter 13, God institutes a detailed set of procedures for how the priests were to identify a leprous infection and an individual. The remainder of chapter 13 then focuses on how people were to address an outbreak if it were to occur in clothing, whether it's linen or leather. And then in the second part of Leviticus 14, verses 33 through 57, God lays out protocols for what was to be done if leprosy was discovered in a physical dwelling like a home. Now, I don't want to spend too much time recapping our previous study, but for our purposes this morning, there are a few points I need to reiterate. First, because Jesus told the men that he cleansed in Mark 1 and Luke 15 to go and present themselves to the priests for the procedures we're going to look at this morning, we can say with 100% certainty that leprosy in the New Testament was the same disease being described here in Leviticus. Secondly, as far as reiterating a few points from the last study, there are undeniable similarities between biblical leprosy and what we refer to today as Hansen's disease. They both manifest as a skin, scaly skin disease, which we understand to be an outer symptom of a much deeper element. Both are incurable, considered to be death sentences, and both the infection was slow-moving and in the end yield devastating physical effects in a person's frame. Finally, in both situations, the infected party would be quarantined away from the rest of society to live out their days. Thirdly, there is no question that leprosy presents for us a profound picture of sin. Like leprosy, sin will kill you. The wages of sin is death. It's a death sentence with no human remedy. Like leprosy, sin might manifest physically. But you know, sin is always evidence of a much deeper problem, something below the skin. Like leprosy, sin will destroy relationships. It'll destroy marriages, families, It'll limit limit genuine community. Sin will separate you from God. And yet the case can also be made that what the Bible is describing here, what we're looking at in Leviticus 13 and 14, this leprosy, isn't actually Hansen's disease. It is much more than just a mere picture of sin. The Hebrew word sairaas, the word we have leprosy, it simply means to strike. The only reason this Hebrew word was translated as lepra in the Septuagint is because there wasn't an equivalent Greek word. For reasons we've already discussed in our last study, this linguistic blooper has yielded a lot of confusion moving forward. Case in point, whatever is being described in Leviticus 13 and 14, well, it's not limited to human biology like Hansen's. Syraath could infect fabric as well as stone, plaster, and the walls. Furthermore, in every instance, Syraath 
It turned the skin a white, white as snow in many instances, which isn't a physical characteristic associated with modern leprosy. In fact, in the four examples we have of a person contracting Syraath in the scriptures, there is no skirting the reality that the disease possessed a spiritual pathology in addition to a biological one. Every example we have of a person contracting leprosy, they do so for one reason. They were intentionally struck by God as a judgment for sin. Because of this reality in ancient Israel, the rabbis went so far as to call this disease the finger of God. Understand, as God is establishing these codes, aimed at defining what it meant to be holy as I am holy, God formalizes this specific judgment in order to illustrate something very important, the seriousness of sin. If Syraath, leprosy, was observed, the evidence of God's judgment undeniable now in a person's life, that person was swiftly expelled from the camp. Not because, interestingly enough, they were contagious. Hansen's disease isn't that contagious. But to be an example that God took a failure to obey His commands seriously. And you know, this perspective clarifies a lot for us. It explains why leprosy could be found in clothing or a home as kind of God's way of warning the would-be sinner the severity of the consequences in their own life. It explains why the person was instructed to present themselves to a priest and not a doctor. Additionally, it explains why the priest was nothing more than an observer with the Word of God ultimately pronouncing the devastating diagnosis. In the end, I find this perspective more consistent with who we know God to be. If you see Syraath, leprosy, as only a type or a picture of sin and not an actual judgment, the punishment, from my estimation, would be unjust and oddly disproportional. If not a divine judgment, how terrible that a person ends up being cut off from God and cut off from God's people for no other reason than they got sick. Finally, viewing leprosy as an actual judgment of God on an account of sin, you know, it only deepens, oh, it deepens the grace that we discover in the first 32 verses of Leviticus 14. Think for a minute how incredible that God creates a procedure for what was to happen when a person was cleansed from an incurable disease. In order for us to fully understand the significance of Leviticus 14, verses 1 through 32, it's important we first spend a few minutes in the Gospel of Mark, specifically Mark chapter 1. Now, according to Matthew 8, Jesus, he's just finished teaching what we know to be the Sermon on the Mount, this incredible sermon about the kingdom of God. When, Mark 1, verse 40 we're told a leper comes to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Mark opens the scene here with a leper coming to Jesus. Because Syraath, leprosy, undoubtedly followed a similar pathology to Hansen's disease, 
let's just take a minute and imagine what this man's general experience had likely been in the context of Leviticus 13. After a few weeks of abnormal fatigue, aching joints, the man woke up one morning with kind of a red, itchy rash. The rash continues to fester over the next few days, and then it slowly starts to turn scaly and white. Deep within the man's soul, you can imagine a, a sinking feeling starts to emerge. This man knew that he had been living in rebellion, not in accordance to God's laws. He knew he had been in sin. He begins to think, could this, could this be? With time, the rash starts to spread. It produces festering sores. It's been said on account of these open wounds, you could smell a leper from up to 150 paces. At this juncture, the man knows that he's going to need to go to the temple and present himself to the priests for an inspection. Now, we have no idea if the diagnosis was immediate or whether or not the 7- or 14-day quarantine was necessary. Either way, the man gets bad news, terrible news. In line with Leviticus 13, the priest reaches the conclusion that this man has been struck by God with leprosy as a judgment for his sin. At this moment, his life would never be the same. Leviticus 13 verses 45 and 46 explains that upon hearing this diagnosis, he would tear his clothing in grief, shave his head as an expression of shame. Everyone would know he was a leper. Then instead of returning home, the man would be escorted out into the wilderness to live out his days. As a dead man walking, this leper would have to watch from afar as his family and his friends had his funeral. He was dead to them. According to Luke 5, by the time this man approaches Jesus, we're told that he was full of leprosy. Because of the slow-moving nature of the disease, we can surmise that he's likely spent years by this point living in isolation. Aside from this, in order to ensure no one inadvertently came into contact with him, Every time this man approached a populated area, he covered his mouth, his mustache, and he cried out, unclean, unclean. As Bible scholar Sandy Adams rightly pointed out, imagine the psychological effect of replacing in your vocabulary the word hello with the word unclean. Devastating. With time, this man's physical condition deteriorated. Aside from the festering sores, his hair would fall out, along with his finger and toenails. His gums decayed, causing his teeth to rot. With time, the tendons in his hands and his feet would stretch, twisting them into a claw-like shape. Once the disease finally moved into the central nervous system, spinal deformation would occur, making it very difficult and painful to walk or to move. Because of the neurological damage, by the time this man comes to Jesus, he's lost the ability to experience human touch and a sense of searing pain. One of the misconceptions of leprosy is that a person's limbs kind of rot and just fall off. That's not the case. Instead, disfigurement associated with leprosy 
often happens as a direct result of the inability to feel or, or to sense pain. You're living out and, and, and you cut your foot, but you don't know you cut your foot on a, a shard of glass until later on you, you, you realize you've been bleeding and now you've got an infection. The inability to feel causes these type of deformations to take place. I mean, what did this man look like physically? As he comes through the crowd, as Jesus finishes up the Sermon on the Mount, begging Jesus for help, what did he look like as he, as he fell there at Jesus' feet? You know, as terrible as all that seems, the worst part of leprosy, it had to have been the isolation. Not only had his sin and judgment alienated him from God, he couldn't go to the temple, couldn't offer the sacrifices we've been looking at, no atonement for sin, but it's destroyed every relationship the man's had. Like he's been forced to watch his wife remarry, his kids move on with their lives. He said zero hope that his future would include anything other than a lonely, horrific death. And yet, in spite of all of that, Mark tells us this leper came to Jesus. According to Mark, the man approaches Jesus, and in the tense, the, the grammar, he's imploring him, kneeling down to him, saying to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. The picture that's being painted in the Greek is one of a deep desperation, respect, and, and faith. He's repeating these lines the entire time he's approaching. If you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. The entire time he's approaching, he's repeating this phrase over and over and over again. Please notice the man's request. It demonstrates for us correct priorities. Isn't that the truth? It's been said this leper came not asking what Jesus could give him, but rather who Jesus could make him. He had his priorities in line. He wanted Jesus to make him into something. The only thing that mattered to this man in this condition at this point in time was for Jesus to do the improbable. It's also important to point out the man's request demonstrates an, an, an astonishing faith in Jesus. He, he declares, look at it again. He says, you can make me clean. You can do this. Like, what makes that belief? Like He doesn't doubt Jesus' ability, his power, his authority. And most incredibly, what makes it astonishing is that up until this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, we have no record of him ever healing a leper. Not only was this an incurable disease, but Jesus has never demonstrated the ability to heal someone of it. But this man believes with all of his heart Jesus can do this. Amazing. He concluded Jesus was more than able. And while this man approached Jesus in faith with the right priorities in mind, his request also, though, reveals the saddest of all realities. Though the man never questions Jesus' ability to cleanse him, he does have a serious doubt as to Jesus' willingness. Do you notice that? You can make me clean, but, but if you are willing. And don't forget that the Jews viewed leprosy, Syrah, as the judgment of God on account of sin. This man had gone to the priests at the temple and received a death sentence. It was the word of God 
Leviticus 13 that had driven the nails into the coffin, that had made the diagnosis. As such, it would appear this leper knew something important. The forgiveness of sin would have to come before he had a chance to be cleansed of leprosy. While the man believed Jesus could heal him, it would appear from his appeal he wasn't sure Jesus would be willing to forgive him. It's as though in his appeal, he's saying, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know this is the rightful judgment. I know what I've done. I know you can heal me, but I just don't know if you'd be willing. I want to just kind of tease you with one thought I want you to chew on. But isn't it true that so many people, maybe you, experiencing maybe practically an effect of sin, you have the same doubts concerning Jesus. <laughs> it's not his ability to save you. You struggle with his willingness. I, I love what happens next. Look at verse 41. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, literally he stirred uh, emotionally to act. He stretched out his hand and touched him. <laughs> now, at that moment, everyone would have gasped. Jesus touching a leper. But then he says to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as Jesus had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now for years, this man has been experiencing the Syrah of God. Because of sin, he was experiencing a judgment of God. He knew it was just. God's word had declared his sentence. And still, this sinner humbly comes to Jesus with a simple appeal. He makes no excuses for his condition. He knows there's no human remedy for a divine judgment. And yet he believes the same finger that judges was also more than able to cleanse. And notice what happens. First, Jesus said. The same word that declared the man to be unclean now pronounced him cleansed. In fact, Mark tells us that immediately the leprosy left him. The judgment of God was instantly lifted. Most incredibly, this word cleanse not only implies the disease left him, but some make the argument that, that it implies Jesus actually even reversed the full effects that leprosy had had on his body. I'm convinced his entire physical frame was in a moment restored to what it had been before he'd experienced the judgment. Because of the compassion of Jesus, this man experiences a complete and total healing. His relationship with God, his access to the temple was reinstated. For the first time in years, he could return to family and friends. An encounter with Jesus gave him life when he only expected death, hope when he only knew despair, joy in the place of pain, admittance into the family of God. How amazing. Love when he only knew revulsion. And you know, if you carefully examine the order of events laid out here, something significant emerges. Notice the leper comes to Jesus. Jesus sees his condition. We're told he's moved with compassion. Jesus then reaches out and touches the man. Then Jesus says, I am willing to be cleansed. And it's at this point, Mark says, that the leprosy leaves the man and he was cleansed. Did you notice that? 
Jesus touch the leper before the leprosy left him, implying that the touch was part of the miracle. I've read one commentator that goes so far as to say that Jesus, the miracle was actually him taking the man's leprosy upon himself to cleanse him. You know, in order to lift off the judgment that this sinner was experiencing, the judgment of God on account of his sin, think about that. Jesus, what did he do? I'm going to cleanse you, I'm going to heal you, but I'm going to take the judgment from you onto myself. Isn't it interesting we read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 that, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Friend, this amazing story illustrates a most glorious truth. Please don't miss this. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. So often we fall into that trap. i got to get some things in order before I come and I give my life to Jesus, before I really submit. No, 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 no. This story teaches us that you don't have to clean anything up. In fact, you're invited to come to Him as you are, knowing that Jesus is not only willing to forgive, but He demonstrated His willingness by taking upon Himself the consequences of your sin. In 1 John 1 verse 9, we read that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the Gospel of John, you'll discover seven I am statements made by Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Seven I am statements. But I believe that there's an eighth I am statement that might carry with it the most radical presentation of the heart of Jesus towards a sinner. Like, imagine you're the leper. Imagine the impact of three words. What three words, the impact those words had in the moment that they rang in your ears to hear Jesus say, I am willing. But Jesus, do you know I am willing? But I, I am willing. I am willing. What a moment when a man numbed by his sin then felt the loving touch of his Savior. Now, for our purposes, look at what, what follows. Verse 43, Jesus strictly warned him, sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, when he went out, he began to proclaim what Jesus had done freely to spread the matter so Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. Very interesting. One of the things that makes Jesus' instructions to this now cleansed leper fascinating is that never before this moment in recorded history of Israel had a Hebrew man ever been cleansed of his leprosy. What we're finding here is something really unique. These instructions... Now, while it's safe to assume Leviticus 13 
had been employed by the priest on numerous occasions. Imagine the surprise, the moment. This leper, in obedience to Jesus' instructions, goes back to the temple, finds the priest. He says, yo, bro, you remember me like 10 years ago? You, you diagnosed me with leprosy? Ha-da-da, <laughs> I'm cleansed. Uh, and, and matter of fact, I was told I needed to come to you, and you were going to like do some things, and I was going to get to go home. And the priests are looking at each other because they have never performed any of these procedures in their history. They're like, I remember in Bible college at some point reading this obscure passage. Where was that? Pull out the scroll. So they go through, you know, chapter 13. They get to 14. Oh, that's where it is. So they turn to Leviticus 14, the first 32 verses, for this man for the first time ever. So the reason we go to this story is it could it be that Leviticus 14, the first 32 verses, existed for this moment? I think so. Let's work our way through the entirety of the text, and then we're going to tie things together. Leviticus 14, verse 1. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper... Then the priest shall command for him to take for him, who is to be cleansed, two living birds, two living and clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop. Obviously, that's what you would take. Verse 5. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, the cedar wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop dipped them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was over the running water, that was killed over the running water. He shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from leprosy, shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. Duh. Verse 8. He who is to be cleansed shall then wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, wash himself in water that he may be clean. After that, he shall come into the camp and shall stay outside his tent seven days. On the seventh day, he shall shave the hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows. All his hair he shall shave off. He shall shave, he shall wash his clothes, wash his body in water. He shall be clean. Verse 10, on the eighth day, so the next day, he shall take two male lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish, three tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one log of oil. Then the priest who makes him clean shall present the man who is to be made clean and those things before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 12, And the priest shall take one male lamb and offer it as a trespass offering, again for sin, and the log of oil, and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. We've looked at these things in the past. And he shall kill the lamb in the place where he kills the sin offering and the burnt offering, in a holy place. For the sin offering is the priest's, so it's an offering made for the priest. So is the trespass offering is most holy, verse 14. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering, and the priest shall put it on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. And the priest shall take some of the log of oil, pour it into the palm of his own left hand. And the priest shall dip his right finger and the oil that is in his left hand, and shall sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. Verse 17. 
the rest of the oil that's in his hand. The priest shall put some on the tip of the man's right ear, of him who is to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. Not the little one, the big one. Uh, Very specific. On the blood of the trespass offering. The rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed, so the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. Verse 19, then the priest shall offer the sin offering and make atonement for him. So they're doing all of these things for the man we just saw in Mark 1, just for context. Shall make an atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Afterward, he shall kill the burnt offering. The priest shall offer the burnt offering, the grain offering on the altar. So the priest shall make atonement for him. He shall be clean, verse 21. But if the man is poor, so we get these concessions, he can't afford these things. Then he shall take one male lamb as a trespass offering to be waived, to make atonement for him, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, a log of oil, two turtle doves, two young pigeons, just as he is able to afford. One shall be a sin offering, the other a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest on the eighth day for his cleansing to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Verse 24, we're almost there. The priest shall take the lamb of the trespass offering and the log of oil, and the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then he shall kill the lamb of the trespass offering, and the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering, put it on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. This is repeating things, but just being specific. Verse 26. The priest shall pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand. The priest shall sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before the Lord. The priest shall put some of the oil that is in his hand on the tip of his right ear, the thumb of his right hand, the big toe of his right foot. On the place of the blood of the trespass offering, the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed to make atonement for him before the Lord. Verse 30, almost there. He shall offer one of the turtle doves or young pigeons, such as he is able to afford, such as he is able to afford. The one is a sin offering, the other is a burnt offering with the grain offering, so the priest shall make atonement for him who is to be cleansed before the Lord. This is the law for one who has a leprous sore who cannot afford the usual cleansing. So we, we all get that. Like that all made perfect, perfect sense. It all fell on the line. You saw all the symbolism there, I'm assuming. The deep significance. Within this passage, we have most incredibly, two big realities illustrated for us. First, we have the mechanism for the cleansing of sin. Secondly, we have what results in our lives once that miracle has taken place. So we have pictured for us how we're cleansed of sin, and we also have pictured what should result from that cleansing. Let's unpack this. Basically, we have a blueprint for salvation as well as our sanctification. First, look at the mechanism for cleansing. Notice how the whole section begins. Verse 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. The way that this is presented implies that this specific cleansing would occur independent of the leper himself. This is not what was to occur in the day that the leper cleanses himself, but when he was cleansed. Again, as mentioned, 
only an intentional act of God can reverse the direct judgment of God. Leprosy had no human natural cure. Once then the impossible had taken place, the law then stipulated the man go and present himself to the priest for an examination. I'm going to kind of recap this to explain what's happening. When Jesus instructs the leper to go and do this, He's doing it in line with this mandate here in chapter 14. If indeed, after the examination was taken, the leprosy was gone, he was healed. Evidence that the leprosy was no longer there. Here's the procedure. So let me, let me recap this very simple. For starters, the priest would take the man, they go outside the camp, and they would bring with them the following items. Two living and clean birds. So they had to be alive, and they had to be clean. Again, these classification of birds being clean or unclean, we found in Leviticus 11. So it would be a pigeon or a dove. So two living and clean birds, that's what you would take. An earthen vessel or, or a clay pot. A hyssop branch. A stick of cedar wood and a scarlet thread. So this is the list of things that the priest and this man, they would take outside the camp. Now, according to verse 5, the priest would kill one of the birds in the earthen vessel, specifically over running water. So they have to be located next to a spring, a river, something with moving water. So one bird gets killed in the earthen vessel. Then the priest would take the living bird, hyssop, cedar, and scarlet thread, would dip them in the earthen vessel containing the blood of the first deceased bird mixed with living water. At this point, the priest would then carefully take the hyssop branch, cedar stick, and scarlet thread, dripping with this bloody water mixture, and he would sprinkle the concoction seven times on him who was to be cleansed of his leprosy. After completing the task, the priest shall pronounce him clean. Now to commemorate the miracle, the priest would then take the living bird that had also been dipped into the blood and water of the first, and he would let that bird loose in an open field. So this is the procedure that would happen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, the apostle writes that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we then, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. And that's Peter quoting Isaiah 53. Now consider, in this bizarre procedure, Declaring someone set free from the judgment of sin, the picture we have here in Leviticus 14 of Jesus and his death on the cross of Calvary. Again, the whole scene takes place where? Well, outside the camp. And we know Jesus was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem at a place known as Golgotha. An earthen vessel filled with living water describes for us the unique blending of both the human and the divine natures within Jesus. Continuing with the typology, the cedar wood, 
reminds us of, well, the cross itself. The Romans would use cedar, the cross on which Jesus was nailed. The crimson scarlet, this thread, a picture of sin, blood, the hyssop branch. If you recall, it was the hyssop branch that was dipped in the sour wine and used to wet Jesus' lips so he could declare what? To telestai. It is finished. We find all of these elements in the cross. Lastly, not only do birds represent the poor man's offering, which is awesome, isn't it? That Christ's work is made available to all men, irrespective of class or status. But the freeing of the second bird, covered in the blood of the first, it presents a powerful symbol of our salvation. We've been set free because we've been covered in the blood of the first, the blood of Jesus. Not only is it through His death that we've been set free from the burdens of sin, but the two birds here, some even speculate, can symbolize both the crucifixion death of Jesus as well as His resurrection life. But this is not the only glorious reality our passage illustrates. Aside from the mechanism of cleansing being ultimately a work found in Jesus, what He does on the cross for us, but we also see a beautiful picture of what results once we've been cleansed. Like notice the interesting flow of events following the declaration of cleansing. So after this has happened, he's declared cleansed. But according to verse 8, after the procedure's completed, we're told he shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, wash himself in water, that he may be clean. The man is then allowed to come back into the camp but has to remain outside of his tent seven days. Then once the seven days are completed, he has to repeat the entire shaving and washing process. Then, verse 10, on the eighth day, the individual makes his first public appearance at the tabernacle as a cleansed man. Then proceeds to go through this lengthy process of making necessary sacrifices. But, how incredible that the man, he's cleansed, but he's presented publicly when? The eighth day. It's not an accident. The eighth day signifies what in biblical numerology? Well, it's the day of resurrection. It's the day of new beginnings. It's a fresh start. This man is being presented as a new man, a new creation. How fascinating. He's to wash and he's to shave everything, even his eyebrows. The, 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 the image is that he's a grown man that looks like a baby. Literally, that he's been born again. The picture we have. Because of Jesus' work, the washing, the cleansing of sin, the man's become a new creation in Christ. After the appropriate sacrifices are made on behalf of the priests, and the former leper, something else really unique happens. Verse 14, we read, The priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering, shall put it on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. So the trespass offering, we have blood. The blood, ear, thumb, foot. Got it? But then in verses 17 and 18, notice after the sprinkling of oil, what happens? Well, the rest of the oil, the priest shall put 
in the exact same places. We're actually told on the blood of the trespass offering, the ear, the thumb, and the big toe. As to the deep significance of these things, I hate to do it again, but I need to. Let me just refer to a point that surfaces in my father's commentary. He says, and it blew my mind, in ancient Israel, there were only four groups of people who were anointed with oil on the head. Kings, those who ruled. Prophets, those who spoke for God. Priests, those who stood before God on behalf of the people. But there was a fourth group anointed with oil. Lepers. Can you believe it? People eaten up by sin were also anointed with oil. Here's a testimony of God's grace. He not only anoints and uses prophets, priests, and kings, he can also take a humble leper and use him for his glory. You know, in the macro, what is being articulated is that anyone cleansed by Jesus of the judgment of sin, something you can't do for yourself, something he can only do for you, is that that person... And again, imagine you're the leper in Mark 1. You've gone, all these things have happened. You come back smooth as a baby's bottom, presented as a new creation on the eighth day. And then this procedure takes place, the blood on your ear, the thumb, the big toe, the oil repeating. The idea is that you've been saved from something. Now you're consecrated for something. You haven't been saved to just do whatever you want. Your life has meaning, and it has purpose. It's consecrated. Like the image of the anointing of the ear, the hand, the foot. With the blood, it's powerful. The only other time we see this happening in Leviticus is in the ordination of the high priest and priests. And yet now we see it happening with a leper. See, the emphasis is that this person's life was to be ordered from head to toe for the purposes of God. They would have an ear to hear the voice of God, hands to do the work of God, feet to walk in God's will. Again, this is the call of every follower of Jesus who's experienced His cleansing touch. We are all called to reflect the divine well in everything we hear and do and go. Our lives are to be the divine on display for the world to see. Never forget, your life has been redeemed by Jesus for a purpose. To accomplish His will to His glory. But there's another component. While we've been consecrated by the blood, we've also been empowered by His Holy Spirit which is symbolized by the oil. You know, it's not an accident that the oil was specifically placed only on top of the blood. You see, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power to live a life of consecration, the power to live a life that reflects Jesus, the power to walk in holiness can only happen in the life of a person who's first been covered by the blood of Christ. Oil must always go on top of the blood and not the other way around. When Jesus instructs this man in Mark 1 to go and present him to the priests, <laughs> this is the process that would have happened. 
that would have been followed. Like this man, you and I, but we've only been cleansed from the judgment of sin because Jesus was willing to take our sin and the judgment it demanded upon himself. His sacrifice affords us a fresh start. You can make me clean. I just don't know if you're willing. And Jesus says, I'm more than willing. And he takes it upon himself. And yet, as this man would have known, you and I, my friend, through what Jesus has done for us, we've been set free. Released like the second bird. Liberated. Not to live as we want. Instead, our lives have been consecrated by the blood of Jesus. We've been saved from the effects of sin to live a life demonstrating a better way and a world filled of sinners headed towards destruction. On the blood, we've been anointed with oil. In closing, the interesting thing about Leviticus 14 is that once it was codified here in the law, as I mentioned, it was never used for about 1,500 years. Never used until Jesus says, I am willing, touches this leper and heals him and sends him to the priest for inspection. The testimony as to the power of Jesus' ministry was to be crystal clear to the priests, the high priests, the very men who, by the way, would sentence him to death. The lesson is that for the first time in Jewish history, Lepers were being cleansed. Those who had experienced the judgment of God were having that judgment taken. It was to let the the world know that there was finally a remedy for sin. A savior from the judgment of God. From the Syrah. By definition, they should have known in that very moment when that leper walks through the gates, cleansed, that the Word of God had been made flesh and was now dwelling among them. For it was only the Word of God that could reverse the judgment of God. Friend, I close with this. If you're looking this morning for the evidence that Jesus is God and that He's more than willing to cleanse you of your sin no matter how ugly that sin might be, I encourage you to look no further than the fact that today lepers are still being cleansed. And so, Father, Lord, we just thank you for your...